You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. We're glad you're here this morning. We ask that you open your Bibles to the letter to the Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews. One of the ways that we like to study the Bible here at Whitefields is we like to study right through books of the Bible. We'll take a whole book of the Bible and we'll go through it each week, taking a section until we get through the whole thing. The reason we like to do that is because that way we let the, the context be rich and we get the whole message of that book, that, was, that, that letter that was uh, given to us by God to speak to us. So that's what we've been doing here in the book of Hebrews in our study called An Anchor for the Soul. This is one of my absolute favorite books of the Bible to study because it's all about Jesus. It's all about looking at who he is and considering what he has done and what it means for us in every area of our lives. So we're going to continue in the book of Hebrews this morning in chapters 4 and 5, starting in chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed on behalf of men, in relation to God, to order gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what it has to say. We pray, Lord, you'd open up our hearts, open up our understanding, Lord, that we might understand these things that your word is speaking to us. We might understand how it applies to our lives. And Lord, may we not just stop there. May we put these things into practice. May we be those who respond to what you speak to us through your word. We ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. I was up late last week on Sunday night when I read the news and saw the news of the terrible shooting that took place in Las Vegas. I have a lot of friends there. I was just there about a month ago, and I, I started texting some of my friends there in Vegas, and, and you know, some of my friends had friends who were at the concert that night, and um, you know, this crowd was shot into, 59 people killed, injuring over 500 others, just an act of evil, a really completely selfish and malicious act of hurting other people and, and taking lives. And one of the things you'll notice whenever something like this happens, I want you to notice the language that people use, the language in in which we talk about it, the language which you read about it in the news. We always talk about perpetrators and we talk about victims. We talk about, we emphasize the fact that the people who were shot, they they didn't deserve to be shot. They were innocent victims. They, They weren't doing anything to deserve this. 
We talk about innocent people who are affected by what happens, the family members and the loved ones. They did, we say things like, they didn't do anything to deserve this, but now they're going to have to live with this for the rest of their life. And we say, that's not fair. And rightly so, we, that we are correct in saying that. But I want you to think about this. What is that the language of? All of those words, what is that the language of? It's the language of justice. It's the language of guilt and innocence. When we talk about things that are fair or unfair, when we talk about what, what people deserve or what they don't deserve, that is the language of justice. And any person who has a heart, we look out on the world and we see things like this and we long for justice. We long for things to be right. We long for things to be fair. We don't want innocent people to suffer. It bothers us when things happen that are unfair. When people do things that are wrong or they hurt other people, we want them to get what they deserve, don't we? Just, I don't know how many of you read the local news or follow the local news here in this area, but this week was the trial for the young man from Berthoud who last year uh, murdered his girlfriend up at Carter Lake. And I was following some of the updates online as the trial was going on and they even went through the sentencing by the end of the week. And you know, in all the social media online, everybody was just calling for justice, saying there needs to be justice. They wanted him to get uh, a verdict and, and they did. The verdict came down, he was found to be guilty of first degree murder and he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. And the response to that was that people were applauding that. They were cheering. They were saying that they were glad because they felt that justice had been served on this girl's behalf and this man had gotten what he deserved. See, we all love justice. We all want justice. We long for justice, at least when it comes to other people. But see, when it comes to, when it comes to things that we feel also that we deserve, then we want justice. We want fairness. But think about this. What about when the tables are turned? What about when you are the one who is on trial. You're the one in the crosshairs of justice. What about when you've done something wrong because all of us do things that are wrong? Or when there's something that you want but you know and you feel that you don't deserve it? What you need at a time like that is an advocate. That's what you need. It's not a judge but an advocate that you need at a time like that. You need someone to come alongside you, someone to fight for you, someone to stand on your side and help you. And the title of today's message is Jesus our advocate. That's what we're going to be talking about. Three important things that this text we read tells us about an advocate. First of all, you need an advocate. Why you need an advocate. Secondly, the kind of advocate you need. And thirdly, what to do once you found that advocate. So why you need an advocate, the kind of advocate you need, and what to do once you found that advocate. So let's begin by looking at why you need an advocate. So to understand why we need an advocate, we actually have to go back a few verses from where we started today to something that we read last week, but we're going to look at it right now from a little bit different angle. If you read with me from chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, it says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So this book, this letter, it was written to a group of 
Christians who were discouraged. It was written to discourage Christians. In fact, they were so discouraged that they were seriously thinking about giving up, just throwing in the towel and quitting, quitting on Christianity, quitting on Jesus, just giving up altogether. And the writer is writing to these people to encourage them to fix their eyes upon Jesus in the midst of their discouragement and their stress and their hardship, to fix their eyes upon Jesus, to see Jesus for who he is and all of his beauty and glory and all that he has done for them. And then rather than giving up, they ought to embrace Jesus. They have to cling to him all the more in the midst of whatever they're going through. And they should look to him as the ultimate source of hope and encouragement. And so over and over in this book, the writer is telling us who Jesus is and what Jesus has done like a jeweler who takes a precious stone or a gem and holds it up under a light and turns it under a a magnifying glass so that you can see all of the beauty from every different angle and how it shines and glimmers. In this section, the writer is showing us yet another aspect of Jesus, a very important aspect of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the advocate we need. And he introduces this by telling us why we need an advocate. And the reason, which we see there in those two verses we just read, is because every single one of us, we have a problem. You and me, we have a problem. And our problem is we are guilty. Our problem is that we have sinned, we have fallen short at different times in different areas of our lives. And so even though we love justice and we want justice, if God is just, and he is, then we've got a problem. Because if God is completely fair, if God is completely fair and gives us exactly what we deserve, then the fact is that we are going to receive judgment ourselves as well. And maybe you'd say, well, well, I don't know about that. I mean, not me. Maybe, maybe some other people, but not me. Sure, there are some bad people out there, like this guy in Las Vegas. They need to be judged, but I'm not one of those people. I don't have anything to worry about. Really? Well, well that's kind of the point that the author's making here. Look at what he's saying. He's saying, look, the word of God is like a blade. It's like a blade that cuts down to the core of who you are and reveals what's really going on under the surface, on the inside. I wonder how many of you have ever had surgery? Whenever you get cut, whether it's in a surgery or not, it hurts. But a surgeon doesn't cut you in order to hurt you. A surgeon cuts you in order to heal you. A surgeon cuts you in order to get to something that is below the surface of your skin. Something that's broken or sick inside of you so they can repair it or remove it or replace it. And that's the picture that we have here. This is what God's word is like. It's like a surgeon's knife and it lays you open and it reveals what's going on inside of you and exposes what's sick and broken in you. The word of God, these scriptures, it tells us here, they are living and active. What that means is that when we study the Bible, this is not just an educational exercise. This is not just about gaining intellectual knowledge or collecting information. This is a, there is a spiritual dynamic that is at work when you read or you study the Word of God. That's why it's called the Word of God, because through it, God speaks to us. And that's why we put such a big focus on studying the Bible here at Whitefields, because we want to know God and we want to hear what God has to say to us. And one of the functions of God's Word as it tells us here, is that it diagnoses us. It lays us on the operating table and it cuts us open and it reveals what's really going on inside of us. And it reveals that although you might feel pretty great and although you might even look pretty great, oftentimes there's a cancer inside of you. And the Bible talks about this in other places as well, like in in Romans chapter three and in uh, Galatians chapter three, we read that 
one of the purposes of the law or the Ten Commandments, one of the purposes is actually to help us see just how bad our condition actually is, like to actually understand how bad the condition is. So for a person who says, I'm a pretty good person, God says, okay, well, well, let me give you a little test. Let's just see how you do on the test. Okay, here's the test. Number one, has anything in your life ever been more important to you than God? Uh, you know, hobbies, work, family, at any time, has anything ever been more important to you than God? Well, yeah, you know, probably that has happened for most of us. Okay, number two, have you ever used God's name in a way that wasn't worshipful, right? Like as a curse word or as a, as a slang or just a filler word. Have you ever used God's name in a, wor- in a way that wasn't worshipful? Thirdly, do you set aside a day every week to rest from your work and to worship God? Do you honor the Sabbath? Number four, have you ever disrespected your parents like ever in your life or have you ever failed to honor them properly? How about another one? Have you ever lied? If you say no, well then there you go. You just lied again, right? So stop lying, please. I shouldn't have even asked you that question for those of you who want to say no. All right, so have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? Have you ever committed adultery? Have you ever murdered someone? And all then you're like, oh, well, I haven't done that one. Oh, congratulations, you know. Uh, no, then have you ever wanted something that wasn't your own, but you wanted it anyway? Okay, so how did you do on the test? God would ask you. Well, some people would say, well, you know, I didn't do too bad. I didn't do super great. You know, I got like, uh, you know, maybe like eight out of ten wrong. Eight out of ten. But you know the two big ones, I didn't get those wrong, right? Like adultery and murder. I aced those two. Well, congratulations, you got 20%. You got, you know, missing 8 out of 10 is still a failing grade. In fact, missing 1 out of 10, that's also a failing grade. But let's go ahead and talk about those two uh, big ones that you're so, you know, happy that you haven't done. You're congratulating yourself, patting yourself on the back. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. Maybe some of you are like, well, actually, I have done one or two of those. Well, remember, it's it's not just a, a matter of what you do or don't do outwardly. It also matters what's going on in your heart. That's why the text says it cuts to the very thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus talked about this on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you know, if a person says, hey, I'm a pretty good person because I've never killed anybody. Well, Jesus says, okay, but have you ever harbored resentment in your heart towards another person? Because you understand that if you've done that, you're guilty. Have you, you say, oh, I've never committed adultery, ever. But Jesus says, okay, but have you ever fantasized about someone? Because if you have, you've committed adultery in your heart. And yes, it's good that you didn't act on those things, but understand, even entertaining those thoughts and those feelings and, and harboring them makes you guilty. You see, the very point is this. It's in verse 13 of chapter 4. It says this, You are going to have to stand before God one day and give an account for everything you've ever done wrong. Do you understand that? You are going to have to stand before God one day and give an account for everything you've ever done wrong. And that's a problem for you, right? Because if God, is totally, if God is totally fair, if he gives you exactly what you deserve, then you're in big trouble. Because what you'll deserve is judgment. What you deserve is to be cut off forever. See, the thing is, we all want justice until we're the one on trial. And that's what the writer is telling us, is that one day you are going to be on trial. One day, you are going to be the one in the crosshairs, and that's not good news for you. And so what do you need? What you need is an advocate. You need someone to come to your aid and to help you out because you are in trouble. So let's talk about the kind of advocate that we need, secondly. Well, what he says here is that the kind of advocate you need for this particular predicament that you are in is not legal counsel, it's not a lawyer. What you need is a priest, 
What you need is a priest. See, the whole concept of a priest was that a priest was a person who could reconnect you with God when you had broken your relationship with God. They would help you patch up that, rela- that broken relationship with God. And the way they would do that, he mentions it here in the text, in chapter 5, verse 1, the way they would do that is by offering s- sacrifices to make atonement for sins, basically to patch up that broken relationship. And so what you need, what I need, to help us in this predicament that we're in, what we need is a priest. Okay, but maybe you say, well... That's kind of weird that he says that because didn't they have priests? I mean, we don't have priests in the same way nowadays, but didn't they have priests? Why would he say that they need priests? Didn't they have an entire system of priests and a temple where they would make sacrifices in order to atone for sins? Well, yes. Well, then what was the problem? Why did they need another priest? Well, because the priestly system that they had had some inherent flaws in it, and they knew that. First of all, the priests themselves, as it mentions here in chapter 5, the priests themselves were sinful men. And so even they had distance between them and God. And so they even had to make sacrifices for their own sins before they could make sacrifices for the sins of the people. Secondly, the system required perfection. It required a perfect sacrifice. And yet we live in an imperfect world. So in order to make this whole thing work effectively, what you needed was a perfect priest... Good luck finding one of those. And you needed a perfect sacrifice. And so you got to say, well, is, that, is that even possible? Does such a thing even exist in a world like ours where everything is flawed? And so what you had was that their priestly system had a whole bunch of stopgap measures. They were just kind of patching things, like putting Band-Aids on things, really. Temporary fixes that had to be done over and over and over again. It was like putting a Band-Aid on a, a gushing wound, you know. And you, you could put it on there, and it might help a little, but it's, it's not going to fix the problem. The problem was still there. You just covered it up, and in a matter of time, you're going to need to cover it up again and again. It's like putting duct tape on something that's broken rather than fixing it, or like this truck that I had where I had this big crack in the radiator, and I could drive it about half a mile before I had to stop and, you know, put gallons of water into the radiator, and then I could go like another half a mile. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't fixing the problem. I was just keeping it rolling for just a little bit longer. That's what the sacrifices were like that they were giving in their priestly system. They were temporary fixes. They were stopgap measures. They were band-aids. They were imperfect and insufficient, and they were presented by people who were imperfect and insufficient. It was not enough. It just covered up the problem, but you would have to do it again and again and again, and that's why they had an army almost of priests who every day would work slaughtering animals, presenting sacrifices to put a band-aid on the problem of sin and guilt before God. But the thing is, when it's all said and done, and when you stand before God, like he's talking about here, and all the band-aids fall off, you've still got the same problem you always had. And so what you need is not just any priest. What you need is a perfect priest. And what you need is a perfect sacrifice, which also creates another problem. And I'll tell you what that problem is. You see, the penalty for sin is a life for a life. In other words, the only substitute for your life is another similar life, right? But there's a problem with that. That would require a human sacrifice. And human sacrifice was absolutely forbidden. It was considered an abomination. There were some nations out there who did that, but God said, don't I ever catch you guys doing that. No way can you ever do that. And so what they would do is they would sacrifice animals. But again, this wasn't fixing the problem. It was just a Band-Aid on the problem. 
And so they come to this thing where it's like, wow, I don't know if this is ever going to work. How are you ever going to fix this? You can't have a human sacrifice. You need a priest, but not just any priest. You need a perfect priest. You need a sacrifice, but not just any sacrifice. You need a perfect sacrifice and a human sacrifice at that, which you're not allowed to do anyway. So what are you going to do? Each of these things alone by itself seems impossible to find, much less all three. And yet, this is exactly what we have in Jesus. We come to Jesus and we find all of these things fulfilled. And up until now, what the author of Hebrews is doing, he is passionate about telling us who Jesus is. First, he showed us that Jesus is not just another man like a lot of other great men who have lived. No, Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. Then he showed us that Jesus, being divine, being God, became one of us. He became a man. He came to us. He became one of us. And he lived without sin, even though he faced temptation just like we do. And he did all of that for one reason, so that he could give his life in exchange for yours, so that he could take what you deserve and then give you what he deserved. He took the judgment and the death. He was cut off from God so that in exchange, he could give you eternal life and the status of being a child of God. For you, it's the greatest trade ever. For him, well, not so much, but you know what he said about it? He said, you know what? I realized it was kind of an uneven trade, but here's the deal. It was worth it. It was more than worth it because I love you and I want you to be with me. In 1 John chapter 2, John says, he writes to these people he's, he's writing to, and he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus, our advocate, he offers himself as the solution to our problem of sin and guilt and separation from God. But there's still one more problem. We're running into a lot of problems with this, aren't we? Okay, well, there's still one more problem. If you were a Jewish person, you would, you would recognize what the problem is immediately. And the text actually addresses it because any Jewish person reading this would have an immediate objection. What they would say is, wait a second, you can't just become a priest, Right? Like you're either born into it or you're not. You can't become, you can't just decide one day that you're going to become a priest. You have to be born into a priestly family. And then from among the priests, a person is appointed by God to be the high priest. So you can't just, you can't just become a priest. Like either Jesus is a priest or he's not. And so the immediate objection that a Jewish person would have would be, wait a second, Jesus did, doesn't meet the qualifications to be a priest. I mean, it's a nice thought and it's very interesting and all to think that Jesus is a priest, but he doesn't qualify. He wasn't born into a priestly family, into the lineage of the priests. And the author addresses this objection in chapter 5, starting in verse 4, where he says this. He acknowledges it. Nobody can take it upon themselves to become a priest. Correct. There were actually three people in the Bible who did exactly that. Did you know that? There were three people in the Bible who said, you know what, I'm going to be a priest. And so they just decided to make themselves a priest. And it didn't end well for either of them. Like the first one was Korah. That's in Numbers chapter 16. He decided to lead a rebellion against Moses, made himself priest instead of Aaron. And God caused a sinkhole to open up underneath him and he died. Then you have King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13. He decided that he's going to be a priest and God fired him from his job as king. Then you have Uzziah. 2 Chronicles chapter 26, he went into the temple and decided that he's going to be a priest now, and he was struck with leprosy on the spot. So it didn't end well for any of these people. 
they all, you know, it all ended badly. So the point is this, you cannot just decide one day, I'm going to be a priest. It has to be done by an act of God's providence. And so then how can Jesus be a priest if he doesn't meet these requirements? Well, the author tells us in verse 5, he says, well, look, Jesus did not just presumptuously take it upon himself to become a priest. He was appointed a high priest by God. And then he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 4 where it says that God appointed the Messiah, before we knew that his name would be Jesus, appointed the Messiah to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, what in the world does that even mean? What it's referring to is a very kind of obscure, mysterious story, which is found way back in the recesses of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. There in Genesis chapter 14, what we're reading about is Abraham. God had called Abraham to leave his home and to venture out on a journey of faith, to take God by the hand and follow him on a journey of faith. And God said, I'm not going to tell you where I'm going to take you, but I will tell you if you follow me, you will be blessed and I will bless other people through you. And so Abraham followed and God was leading Abraham to the promised land. And at one point along the way, Abraham meets this mysterious character named Melchizedek. And what makes Melchizedek so interesting is that he is at the same time a king And he's also a priest. He's a king of a city called Salem, but he's also a priest of God Most High. Here's why it's interesting. This is the only place in the Old Testament, in the Bible, until we get to Jesus, where we see someone who is both a king and a priest at the same time. Nowhere else in the Old Testament do you find anyone who is a king and a priest at the same time. And that makes sense because... The two jobs really don't fit together because they're really about two different things, right? So a king's job was about law and order. It was about enforcing the law and enforcing judgment, keeping order, making sure there's a just and fair society. And the Bible tells us in this way, the king represents God to the people. Romans chapter 13, it it tells us the same thing. The reason we should respect governing authorities is because they're doing God's work by providing justice and order. Without justice and order, the world would be a terrible place. I mean, think about places in this world where there actually is no order and justice. Like the parts of Somalia, you know, Somalia has these parts of their country where there's no police, there's no courts, there's no government, there's no order. It's just run by gangs with guns. It's a terrible place to be. So the king, the authority, represented God in the sense that he represented justice, order, the law and judgment, making sure that everybody got exactly what they deserved and nothing more than what they deserved. Now, a priest, on the other hand, had a very different role. A priest represented the people before God. So a priest was a caregiver. A priest was a supporter. He was the one who came alongside people. He made atonement for the sins of the people so they could patch up their broken relationship with God. And so these two jobs didn't fit together well. You know, how do you combine justice and mercy. How do you combine these two things? They're kind of like oil and water. They don't mix together. Because think about it, by definition, they're actually opposites. So justice is giving someone what they deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, is not giving someone the justice that they deserve. So they're literally opposites, justice and mercy. Mercy is when the police officer lets you go with just a warning even though you deserve a ticket. It's when you messed up but somebody cuts you some slack. By definition, mercy and justice are opposites. And so as much as we love justice and we want fairness, we also love mercy, especially when it comes to ourselves, especially because we all make mistakes. 
And what's interesting about the Bible, though, is that it tells us that both of these things are characteristics of God, that he is both completely just and he is completely merciful. He is just and merciful. He is just. He will not let any act of evil or injustice go without punishment. He will give everyone what they deserve. And yet, he is merciful. He's patient. And he's gracious. And when you look at that, you've got to say, well, wait a second. Am I the only one here who, who sees that these two things don't go together? That they're opposites? It seems that it's almost kind of like we have this schizophrenic God with this split personality and you never know which one you're going to get. He just kind of switches back and forth between the one and the other. Or who am I going to get today? Is it going to be the God of justice or is it going to be the God of mercy? In fact, the ancient uh, Jewish rabbis were so confused by this. They had such a hard time reconciling these two things, the justice on the one hand and the mercy on the other, because they read about both of them in the scriptures, but they thought, how do you fit those two together? They, they don't go together. And so they came up with this concept. And their concept was that God had two thrones and he switched back and forth between these two thrones. The one was the throne of justice from which he dispensed justice. The other, he would go and sit in the throne of mercy and dispense mercy. But again, the big question is you have this schizophrenic God who has this split personality. And one of the big questions that comes up when you read the Old Testament, a question that a lot of people ask is this, is a relationship with God, is it conditional or unconditional? Is a relationship with God conditional or unconditional? Think about that because in some places it really seems like what God is saying is, okay, here's the law, here are the rules. If you want to have a relationship with me, you got to keep the rules. And if you don't, game over, you're cut off, done. And then in other places it seems like God is saying, hey, look, you know what, no matter what you do, I mean, you could go kill the president and shoot drugs in your eyeballs. I don't care. I'm going to never leave you or forsake you. I'll always be here with you, and I'll be faithful no matter what you do. And, and so you've got to wonder, well, which is it? On the one hand, he's talking about justice. The other hand, he's talking about mercy. Which is it? Because it doesn't seem like it can be both. It's got to be one or the other. And this question, this tension builds in our minds, and in, in the, as we read the Bible, it's just unsorted out, right? And then we finally find the conclusion when we come to Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have both. We have both justice and mercy in full force. Look at verse 7. It says this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. When did that happen? When did Jesus cry out? When did Jesus scream? When did Jesus agonize? When did Jesus pray and cry out with loud cries and tears? That happened in two places. It happened first in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed and he was so stressed out that the capillaries in his skin burst and blood came out of his skin. That's how stressed out he was. And he prayed and he said, God, if there is any other way, then please spare me from this. Please don't, let me, don't make me go through with this. And then again we see Jesus crying out in agony, screaming on the cross as he hung on the cross and suffered. Why? Because Jesus took what he called the cup, the cup, the cup of eternal justice. He paid the penalty for our guilt. He paid that price for you. Infinite love was honoring infinite justice. Infinite love honoring infinite justice. And so justice was satisfied on the cross so that mercy and grace could be dispensed to you and me. Jesus met all the conditions of justice for you on your behalf so that God could embrace you and love you 
unconditionally. What that means is that when God forgives you, he's not just saying, hey, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. Uh, We'll just pretend like that never happened. No, not at all. He is able to forgive you because Jesus paid the price for all of your sins on the cross. He took the justice so you could get the mercy. That's the message of the gospel. He took the justice so you could get the mercy. And in that way, Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Why? Because Melchizedek predated the the Jewish priestly system. And secondly, because Melchizedek was both a king and a priest, fully committed to justice and the law and truth and holiness, and on the other hand, absolutely committed to love and mercy and grace. We're going to talk about Melchizedek more when we get to chapter 7. But the point here is this. You need an advocate, and Jesus is the only one who can advocate for you and meet your need. Now, thirdly, what do we do? We'll, find, we'll finish with this. What do you do once you've found this advocate? Well, two things. Number one, number one, don't give up. And number two, draw near to him with confidence. Look at what it says in chapter 4, verse 14, going back to where we started. He says, since then, since we have such a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. What he's saying is, because we have Jesus, this advocate, don't give up. Because as dark as it might be today, it's only in him that you have hope for the future. You see, Jesus told his disciples at one point, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. You will have difficulty. But take heart because I have overcome this world. He's saying, don't give up. If anything, cling to Jesus all the more when things are hard because it's only in him that you have hope that goes beyond this life. It's only in him that you have strength to face whatever life throws at you. And that's why the next thing for us to do after we don't give up is that we must draw near to him with confidence. Draw near to him with confidence. And it tells us why. Verse 15. Because we have a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness. Why? Because he's been there. He's been there. He's not some faraway, distant God who has no idea what it's like to go through the kinds of things that you're going through. He's actually walked a mile in your shoes. He knows what it's like to be a teenager. He was a teenager once. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to be betrayed and abandoned by people you thought were your friends. Think about this. He knows what it's like even to pray for something and ask God for something and not get it. Has that ever happened to you? He knows what that's like. He's been there. He went through all of it for you. And because of that, he can sympathize with you. He has sympathy. He feels empathy for you and for what you're going through. For the ancient Greeks, one of the primary attributes that they believe God possessed was apathy. Apathy means the complete, total lack of caring, right? The total lack of of any feeling or emotion. But it tells us here Jesus isn't like that. He's not apathetic towards you. He's sympathetic. He's empathetic. In fact, the word sympathy in Greek literally means to suffer together, to suffer together. And that is what he does with you. Because Jesus is both king and priest, because he is both omnipotent and compassionate, we can come boldly to his throne to receive mercy and to find grace in time of need. Now, grace is more than mercy. We've been talking about mercy so far, but grace is something more than mercy. It's something beyond mercy. You see, mercy is not getting what you deserve, but grace is different. Grace is when you get something that you don't deserve. Grace is when you get something you don't deserve. It's a gift. And so to come to God to find grace in our time of need, what that grace refers to is anything and everything that you need to get through whatever you're going through. Maybe it's strength, maybe it's confidence, maybe it's patience. You can boldly come into the throne room of the king and ask for it. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we are told, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That word mediator, that's what a priest did. They mediated, they were a go-between between God and man. And what this is telling us is this, if you have Jesus, you don't need any other mediator to mediate between you and God. You don't need to pray to saints. You don't need to pray to Mary, the mother of Jesus. You can go directly to God. You don't even need an earthly priest. You can go straight to Jesus, our great high priest, who is himself God. Jesus on the cross, he took the hand of man and he took the hand of God and he brought them together. He suffered the agony of judgment and the agony of separation from God so that you could enjoy the joy of relationship with God. And because of that, we can come to God freely and confidently and boldly and we can receive mercy and forgiveness. We can receive grace for whatever we need. Let me ask you this, what is it that you need today? You've come here today. I'm sure that there are things that you are going through and there are things that you need. I want to encourage you. You can go to God confidently to receive forgiveness, to receive mercy, to receive grace for whatever you're going through. You need an advocate and Jesus is the only one who qualifies to be the advocate you need so that you can be right with God. So let me ask you this. Have you embraced Jesus as your savior? Have you done that? If not, or or maybe you're not sure, I want to tell you this. Make today the day that you put down your yes for good and you say, no more waiting, no more putting it off, no more sitting on the fence. I see, Jesus, I see you, that you are a great Savior, that you're a good God and that you are my only hope. So I give you my life and I make you my Lord. And let me tell you this. If you have already done that, uh, then great. If you haven't done it, I encourage you to respond to God's word by doing that today. If you have done it, I want to encourage you in this. You need to embrace the gospel over and over. You need to cling to Jesus all the more and draw near to him today and in this coming week. Amen? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the advocate that we need. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your kindness towards us. Thank you, Lord, for giving your life for us and sacrificing yourself. Lord, we ask truly that we would know you as this advocate And Lord, thank you for this invitation to come to you boldly and receive forgiveness and mercy. I wonder if there's anyone here today who's saying, you know what, I need that. I need mercy. I I don't want to get what I deserve because I understand that I would be in trouble. Lord, thank you that in Christ you don't give us what we deserve, but Lord, you give us grace. You give us what we don't deserve. Lord, I pray for anyone here who says, you know what, I need mercy, I need forgiveness. Lord, I pray that they would receive it from you today, that they would see you, Jesus, as their great advocate who has given yourself to make atonement for their sins once and for all. Lord, I pray for those of us who say, you know, I'm going through something right now and I need grace to get through it because I don't have what it takes to get through this. Lord, may we come to you and find from you the grace that we need to help in time of need. Lord, I pray that you would do all those things in our lives and in this coming week, in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.